And now, coming to you live from the wilds of Australia, it's Jonathan Schran and James Bradley on the Auxiliary Coot Street Podcast! Hello, James. Hello, Jonathan. I'm, I'm excited to hear that when you do the intro, you uh, snap your fingers before you do it to get yourself into rhythm. <laughs> is that what you think it is? No, that's not what it's for at all. I have no rhythm. I can't clap in time. I'm a person who goes to rock concerts and when he's clapping, doesn't actually hit his hands because he reckons everybody around him is going to know that he's slightly off the beat all the time. Uh, I live in that fear all the time. <laughs> no, see, it's, it's the white man's jive. No, the reason that I uh, clap my click, click my fingers is to get us a clear mark on the recording where I know where uh-huh. to cut the nonsense off from before. You see? Uh-huh. So anyway, w- welcome, welcome to to Cood Street. Thank you for joining me. Gary's off on uh, you know sort of do it on family duty, and I thought we might have a chat about awards and of course this week being the Nebula Award awards as well. We might have a brief chat about that. Sure, that sounds like fun. But before we got started, tell me what's been happening in the in the world of, of James Bradley. I was in a bookstore yesterday and I saw your Penguin uh, single book, Beauty Sisters, on sale. So how, how are books going and everything? Um, well, hopefully books are doing better than newspapers, I must say, having seen some circulation figures for newspapers <laughs> the other day, um, which were just like 20% drops in circulation, which is horrific. Um all the books are going well. I've just <laughs> sold a new novel, um, Played, which will be out next year in Australia. We're still kind of um, sorting out the overseas stuff at the moment. Um, but it's out with Penguin in Australia. Uh, my, my publisher and I have now had the same conversation about when it will be about three times, and mm. uh, we keep not resolving that. My view is it's going to be out in uh, Mar- February, March next year. It's called Clade, and... I'm very excited about it. I've just finished another book, a, a YA science fiction-y thing. You're which I'm you turned into a hack, James. I, I think I was always a hack. I just, you know, I, 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 just, I was just a hack who stressed about it. <laughs> but then, I mean, how long is it since your last novel came out? Um, yeah, it's a really bad figure. Was, um, was, was that I, the, the Deep Field? No, it was The Resurrectionist, which okay. came out in 2004. Five. So, so it's five, time. Sorry, I'm lying. 2006 it came out. I'm okay. sorry. So, so it's um, time though. Oh, it's way time. But I, I don't know. I had a, I had a number of books fall over. Mm. Um, and I, I have done other things. I wrote a lot of yeah. nonfiction in the interim and had two children and stuff. Well, I didn't have the children personally, but um, <laughs> uh, you were there to help. Out. So I, I have been doing stuff, but I, I don't know. I. I've also kind of ended up writing different things. I just, I, I had a kind of, I'd done three novels and I didn't know, I don't know. I, I've ch- I need a better patter about this, obviously, but I, I did go through a kind of soul searching about why I was doing it and why I wanted to do it and what kind of thing I wanted to be writing and what relationship I wanted to have to my writing. Yeah. Um, and that was a bit of a, it ended up being a really good thing, but it was not much fun at the time, I have to say. Well, I guess since, since, you know, we've come to know each other, you know, we've talked about science fiction, and I, I know you've been reading a lot of science fiction and thinking about it and writing about it. Has that fed into what you're writing now as opposed to what you were doing before? I think it has. Um, I mean, look, I think the book that I've got coming out next year is science fiction, probably. I mean, I think it's one of these books that certainly has science fictional elements. Yeah. Um, um, 
Although my second novel was also that. And I mean, I would have thought, I think The Resurrectionist is a book that can be read as a kind of horror novel as well in a, in a, in a kind of way. I mean, I think I think most of the stuff I've written in me, for many years has sat somewhere on the edge of genre often. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it has. I mean, part of what I had going on was when I finished The Resurrectionist, I, I was right. I mean, I was writing kind of fairly conventional literary novels and part of what I had going on was a real crisis about what was the point of doing that, you know, and I just, I felt like, I felt like the stuff I was writing wasn't connecting with anything that mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find a way of, I don't know, finding a writing, finding a way of writing that felt engaged with the world, you know, and kind of the world, the world as it was changing. And so, so in the book I've just finished, the Clade is a kind of book about climate change, you know, and yeah. that was something I'd spent years trying to work out how to write about. And I think part of what happened was me just deciding I didn't, I didn't want to keep going down the road I was going down. I wanted to find a way as I had when I wrote the deep field of somehow marrying the different things I was interested in. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not actually particularly convinced that I, I, I would encourage, I write as I read, which is in a kind of genre blind way as much as I can. I mean, I don't, I, I, I try not to cut myself off from things or to make decisions about what I'm going to read on the basis of I don't read that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I try to write like that as well. I try to write the thing the way it needs to be written. But one of the things I did find useful when I started thinking about how to write about climate change, which is saying, well, I could use some of the toolbox of science fiction, you know, it would give me a way of talking about it, you know, so that's, yeah, I'm not obviously not a, a a revelation because plenty of other people have done it, but it was it was a useful way of thinking for me. Well, it's interesting though because one of the great questions that I keep coming to these days is, you know, what exactly is science fiction for? What does it do that's different from anything else out there? Why should we consider it to be of value, of interest, of merit? Right. And some of that is, I guess, playing that game of well, what is science fiction anyway? Which is kind of a bit pointless. But some of it is, I guess, identifying the kind of tools that it has, the things it allows you to do, and then actually either using it in a straight science fictional way or in other ways where you can abstract elements from it and use them in what you're doing to, to achieve something different that has some kind of science fictional element to it um, without actually being pure science fiction itself, which sounds like yeah. kind of what you're doing. I guess it is. I mean, I... I, I kind of understand what you're what you're saying in a very a very direct kind of way. I mean, I and I wouldn't want to say that you know I, I'm always reluctant to say there is a thing that is science fiction, you know. Sure. Um, but I do think I do think that one of the things that allows you to do as a writer and as a reader is to I guess grapple with the nature of the world we live in and. You know, we do live in a world which is essentially science fictional. You know, I mean, it, and and that, you know, the, the capacity to talk about all of the things that we're trying to deal with, just the scale, the complexity, the saturation of media, you know, the disparity of wealth. I mean, all of those kinds of things, the environmental stuff. You know, it gives you a set of, I guess, kind of tropes and conceptual building blocks. To, to kind of grapple with that, you know, and I do, I do think that that's one of the reasons that you're seeing a lot of those ideas migrating out of science fiction and into what 
people call the mainstream. I mean, I, the problem with the, this conversation is always that I feel like all the terms are so incredibly loaded, you know, and as soon as you start having this conversation, you're kind of tacitly saying there is a thing that is science fiction. There is sure. a thing that is the mainstream. And I, I, it just seems to me that they're always such complex, mutable, interdependent things that it, it often doesn't make much sense to talk about them that way. I think there's truth to that, though. What always frustrates me is how do you talk about science fiction without some common understanding of what it is? How do you talk about it evolving and changing if you don't have some kind of picture of where you started or where you're going or where you are, right? And I, I completely you know, sort of agree that the whole idea of, say, a definition of science fiction is fairly pointless and one one of those kind of games you play when you're in first year university or something rather than you know something mature and reasonable to waste time on but I, I i do i still wonder i ask myself all the time what is science fiction for i read quite an interesting piece recently by norman spinrad now norman i don't always agree with and he is a sort of elderly gentleman who maybe occasionally gets a little bit curmudgeonly uh but you know he was saying that for him at least the science, anything that's not about the future isn't science fiction. And that, you know, it is science fiction's great mission, if it has such a thing, to talk about, analyze the, the future and how we relate to it. And whilst I don't want to get reductive about things, that kind of spoke to me a little bit because I do, I, I sit there and kind of go, well, okay, I, I've got nothing against a straightforward space opera adventure, but a, a more substantial book, like the kind of books that were up for the nebulous today, um, a more substantial book hopefully does more. And you're going, well, what is it? And I think it's this thing. Look at today. Talk about tomorrow. You were talking about you wanted something that comes that you could engage with that ha it came from your own experience and you could actually relate to. And I think that's some element of this. It's, it's, it's the thing where you take today and extrapolate out to tomorrow in a useful way. And I think sometimes that gets lost. You know, mm. It's like uh, Spinrad was writing about steampunk and how, as far as he's concerned, while steampunk has artistic and literary merit, it can never be science fiction. And his reason for it not ever being science fiction is because basically it's a fantasy of a past that never was based on a kind of technology. And that kind of, I, I'm okay with that as a way of looking at, at that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of, a lot of the steampunk stuff. Mm. But, you know, and I think you can probably make it an argument that it's about trying to kind of renegotiate a relationship with technology and, and the serious things you can say about it, you know, which are probably interesting. But, I mean, I I, I would have said, yeah, I mean, I, I think if what you're saying is one of the things science fiction is is about the future, mm. then I'd probably go with that. And I actually think that's one of the reasons that attracts me to mm. it is that it is a way... I feel like we as a culture have lost the capacity to talk about and think about the future. You know, and you can see that we talked about this, I think, the last time I was yeah, on the podcast, yeah. you know, that sense that the reason we keep doing apocalyptic, apocalyptic movies and, you know, apocalyptic futures is that we actually can't, we're so trapped within the kind mm. of nature of the kind of capitalist present we live in that we've lost the capacity to imagine alternative futures. And science fiction is one of the ways of getting that back, you know, and of getting in a sense, outside of, I guess, the kind of prevailing assumptions that we live within and saying, well, look, you know, history continues to happen. Mm. I, I've just, I, I must say, embarrassingly, I have just read 
the Robinson Mars books, which I had never read to yep. my shame. And one of the things I found totally enthralling about them, you know, and it's a similar kind of thing I found enthralling about 2312, is the sense that, you know, what Robinson is actually saying at some level is that history is not over. History will continue to happen. Mm. And, you know, we do live in a time where our sense of the future is either apocalyptic or non-existent. You know, we are, we're either going, the world's going to end in flood and fire and climactic disaster, or the future is going to be exactly the same forever. You know, yes. better, better iPhones, you know. And I just, I just don't believe that. I mean, I think history will continue to happen. And, and one of the things that, that science fiction allows us to do is to take that back. You know, we can, yeah. we can put it and talk about it. And that, you know, I, I don't think that's everything it does. But it's certainly one of the things that yeah. it does. And one of the things it's for, I mean, if you're looking for that kind of instrumental argument about what it's for, I think that's one of the things it's for. When you find yourself reading around in science fiction now, do you see the kind of conversation that you hope you would see when reading science fiction taking place? Um, now, there's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I, Yes. Oh, look, I certainly see a lot of stuff that I think is I admire very much. Um, I certainly see things that seem to me to be doing very interesting, very interesting things and, and grappling with that, that stuff. I see a lot of stuff that I have to confess I'm not wildly interested in, but mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's about my, my tastes, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you do. I think you do. I, I, I'm fairly unseduced by that kind of, gee, it's cool approach to culture where, you know, in a sense, something that pushes your buttons is the thing that you're excited about. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like a sense that there are kind of ideas and things happening, happening in the middle, but I'm being given something that will that will change me or make me think in some way. So, but no, I do, I do, I do see that kind of thing around. Um, I'm curious just quickly, how do you relate to the recent, well, comparatively recent books from William Gibson then? Um, I, the, the, the most recent three. Yeah. Um, I look, I, I'm looking forward to his new one. I, 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 can I just observe that there's this thing clearly about, you know, geographic, um, geographic titles going on the moment. We've got Christopher Priest writing the adjacent. Mm -hmm. You've got Ken Kalfas doing the equilateral. And now we've got um, uh, Gibson doing, is it called the peripheral? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, look, I think they're really interesting. I, I think that one of the things he does incredibly well is all of that, you know, that sense of kind of how, what might the textures of the future look like and feel like. I, my, in a sense, my frustration with certainly the second and third one, with both, not, what's the, uh, Spook Country, Spook Country, and um, what's the third one called? Zero History. Um, mm. I, my mild frustration with them is that they're both kind of caper books. So there's this kind of comedic, 
comedic plotting going yeah. on, which means that, do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a level at which they're doing very serious things and then somehow kind of trivialising it. But, I mean, he's engaged in a kind of culture jamming, which is what's interesting about them as books. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, lots of them are fantastic. Why, what's your, do you, how do you feel about them? I, I, I'm mixed. I mean, part of me is really attracted to literally the cool hunting side of them, the, the way that he's looking to, I guess, extrapolate from the pattern of today, the, the, the things that sit on the on, on the... The, the surface of today into some kind of future. I, I think that's kind of interesting. He obviously doesn't set stuff in the future really much anymore at all. And he do, and quite often writes things which are more of interest to, to science fiction than actually science fiction themselves. Hmm. Um, but I've found that the last couple of books, I mean, I must admit, I think I, I mean, I read the bridge trilogy, which I thought was, was fine. But I thought the last trilogy was really, really clever and had lots of interesting stuff about, you know, this is the, what the Blue Ant trilogy, Pattern Recognition, Spook Country, and Zero History. I thought that they really were an interesting look at, at today's culture from a science yeah. si science fictional perspective. You know, and and I don't, Pattern Recognition is a brilliant book. Yeah. Oh, I think it is. I really do think it is. Uh, the one, one thing I mean to do, and I've, probably, I've said so here on the podcast, at some point I've got to go back and reread Neuromancer to see whether it's still a book, a book of interest, you know. Mm. Speak, I mean, because I don't know when you read it, but I mean, I, I read it at ground zero pretty much, by, just by wild chance, not because of any great connectedness, but I read it just as it came out. And I was just getting sort of involved in science fiction and becoming, you know, in, enmeshed in it. And I found it absolutely cataclysmic, just almost like worldview changing as a piece of science fiction. Um, I, I read it later and had a similar reaction. I actually read it in about 1990 for yeah. some various reasons. And I just, I had that feeling that your head was being taken off. You mm. know, that, that, that sense that someone's taken the top off your head and stuck a stick in and swooshed around, you know, it's kind of like you come out going, my God, that's extraordinary, you know. Yeah. But then, uh, yeah. but, but then I kind of feel like he, for a while there, like, I, I really felt he significantly lost his way. Yeah, you know, I'm probably one of the few people who think, didn't just, I thought very little of Count Zero or Mona Lisa Overdrive. You know, um, they, it was only parts of Virtual Light. I thought, you know, this is, this is something. Uh, and then this, this final trilogy, but he, he seemed to sort of not know what to do about uh science fiction until he'd absorbed it again and then come up with another way of looking at the world that absorbed that worldview kind of thing rather than being overt science fiction the way Neuromancer was. Hmm. That's interesting. Look, I, 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 sorry, I sound like I was being ambivalent about the most recent books, which I'm, no, I'm no. actually not. I like very much. Um, but I do... I do kind of I worry about the slightly jokey edge yeah. to the to them because I mean uh, you feel like he's doing such kind of fascinating stuff you kind of want them to be more more substantial uh, yeah substantial you know, I mean because in a sense what they are about doing I mean they are kind of culture jamming you know yeah. and I mean it's interesting to look at them next to something like the most recent Pynchon novel Bleeding Edge which mm. is a Kind of historical techno comedy set in 2001, just before September 11, and September 11 happens in the middle of the book, um, which is well, 
it's a very strange book. I, I, I read about the first 200 pages thinking I'm, I had not expected to enjoy this and I'm really loving it. Mm-hmm. And when colder and colder on it, the more I read after that, and eventually by page 500, when you finish it, you're just going, I hate this book. When's it going? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was something about, it was a similar kind of thing about this kind of attempt to, I guess an attempt to um, playfully engage with the, with the with the textures and the business of, uh, of that world, and and to somehow draw a kind of mental map or a mental geography of the contemporary consciousness out of it. And I, I feel like Gibson gets a lot closer to it than Pynchon. I but, you know, I, still, I just I just wish they'd be a bit. I want it to be a bit gruntier. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I kind of think that... I mean, I always think now of Gibson in the same territory, probably exclusively, actually, as uh, Neil Stevenson. Just in the sense that both of them are have a, an, a, an essentially science fictional methodology, uh, way of looking at the world, but ran away from science fiction to do other things. Um, and the guy that I thought would have been like that would be Bruce Sterling, who's proven not to be who's really a, a, a propeller and beanie sci-fi guy. But I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the peripheral is going to be like. I think it's what, Octo- late October, I think it's due out, so I guess there'll be galleys around. Well, it's due this year, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, late October this um, year. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to see it. I mean, I, I suspect also one of the things that makes, you know, and I don't want to sound like I don't like them because I do like them a lot, mm-hmm. but I think one of the things that makes those most recent two books slightly unsatisfying emotionally is... Exactly that, that they don't have a kind of emotional core to them, whereas a book like Pattern Recognition, you know, there's so much kind of unresolved grief and loss in that book that it makes it a very affecting book to read. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but both both Zero History and, and Spook Country, you know, they're not, they're not felt books at some level. Yeah. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Um, they they and, sometimes come across as being more about being intellectually clever than something else. Here, here's a clever insight rather than here's a substantial moving piece of prose. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right. You know, and I would like there to be more of a more of an emotional emotional. Um, I mean, there, look, there is stuff in it. I mean, certainly in the third one, there's all the stuff about Milgram sure. recovering from the, the addiction and stuff, which is there, but I, you know. Yeah. I I guess the thing is, though, I mean, there, I mean Gibson's, what, six, 66 now, right? God, is he? Yes, he is. You know, th- this is like the shock, that, well, not, well the, the shock at Lucia Shepard dying earlier in the year and finding he was 71, you know, and you're going, time flies i mean i remember being sort of being young much younger myself and having these people filling the pages of magazines when i was starting reading the field and being thrilled to see their name on tables tables of contents so but i guess what i was going to say was that with gibson at 66 he's not going to change much now you wouldn't think i mean it's reasonable to imagine that the peripheral will be something like the blue ant trilogy it even sounds like it's going to be i thought it had spaceships in it I haven't read any uh, details about it. Um, I thought I'd read it was a straight science fiction novel in the future with spaceships, but I could be wrong about that. But but who who actually writes that? 
you know, not to be sort Steve of. Well, no, no, no. Well, he does, yes. I guess what I mean, though, when I say that, that's a, a, a foolish thing. Who's actually writes straight science fiction these days? All sorts of people write straight science fiction these days. But when guys like Gibson say they're going to write straight science fiction, somehow they always end up not doing so because they're looking to do something else anyway. You know, he. It, it's weird to say he's more willing to write about write about the future than in the future kind of thing. But there's that kind of a feeling about it. Um, and all I really know about the peripheral is that it's what's set in two eras, one in the mid, mid you know, the immediate future and one in the farther future. But who knows? Mm. It'll be interesting to find out. We'll have to get back together and talk about it when it does come along. I guess what I was segueing towards is an idea of feeling how excellent the field is, is at the moment or not. And that segues to part of the reason why we're going to talk, talk t t together. And that was about the Nebula Awards that were presented this morning. Now, I know you forewarned me that you've really only read a small handful of the novels involved, and I have too, so maybe it's a brief discussion. But I was going to say, I guess the first thing that's interesting about the Nebulas is that, I mean, they really are supposed to be a writer's award, I mean, given to writers by writers. So you would think that you'd get all sort of aspects of small organizations aside, some kind of particular benchmark for literary excellence in the field by looking at the table of, uh, look at the nominees and winners, you would hope. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I, you, I, you would hope that. Yes. You would hope. And, and, and I, I mean, to, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I mean, I, 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 as I said to you, I've only read, I've read, well, I've read really nothing off the uh, short fiction because, as I said before we started, I wait for you to uh, <laughs> sort that out for me. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I've read kind of three and a bit of, yeah. the, of the novel shortlist and I've, I've borrowed another one of them from the library and then completely failed to read it. You know, yeah. kind of, well, so, you know, but I mean, I, I actually think it's a really interesting shortlist. Oh, it is. It is. It's certainly it's, for the novel. Well, the, the whole thing is interesting. I mean, if, if you start with um, the Grand Master Award, which start kicked off the uh, events this morning, you know, that was that went to Samuel R. Delaney. And if mm. anybody is sort of in the similar place to William Gibson as a great science fiction writer who did something really interesting early in his career and then did, did other things, Delaney stands there as one of these great sort of figures in the history of the field. Mm. So it's fascinating to see him acknowledged. There's a little Australian connection in the Andre Norton Award. Now, I was delighted that uh, Sister Mine, a book that I've read by, by Nalo Hopkinson, won. Uh, and you would have a chance to meet Nalo when she was out here in Canberra last year, right? I did. Yep. And a fascinating book, really good book. And I've read a number of the others, but I would particularly point out, uh, for the purpose of the podcast, Jacqueline Moriarty's A Corner of White, which uh, I know Marianne my, Marianne, my wife, has read. And which was uh, commissioned by Anna McFarlane of this oh, parish. Really? Yeah, she's the editor on the book. Um, is Karen Healy one of hers as well? She may be, but I, yeah, she is. I think she is. Yes. Uh, I'm in fact looking it up. Uh, Karen Healy. She's a Kiwi. Yeah, but she's. It was an Alan and Unwin edition that had her up. So, I think you may find she is certainly Jacqueline is. I mean, Jacqueline has been through her whole career from the very beginning. I remember. Uh, Anna saying she'd found this fascinating writer in the slush pile. And uh, her entire career started with Anna editing her. This is, of course, Anna, of course, is the head of, uh, I think, is it Alan and Unwin Children's here in Australia? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I think. Uh, was it, yeah, was it sure she's, yeah, she's certainly the other number one. Of it. And oh, it's, it's a Marvel set. It was actually my editor at one point many years ago. Okay. On my on the first two best of the year, she the first best of the year that I ever edited for Harper Collins back in 1996. She was my editor. So just back before she got married, in fact. I'm sure she'd be a terrific editor. I've never. She's lovely, editor. wonderful. I'm sure, she'd be terrific. But it's a very strong shortlist, very much a fantasy shortlist. In fact, for what's a young adult science fiction and fantasy shortlist, almost exclusively fantasy, which which is fine. I mean, it is the science fiction fantasy writers of the America of America. Mm. Fascinated to see Gravity win for best dramatic presentation. Mm, um, so am I. <laughs> now, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I don't, I don't know if you did. Um, I did. I liked it a lot. Um, I look as a kind of exercise in escalation of risk. I mean, as a kind of exercise and all that, and as a visual spectacle, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's completely mm. compelling. There is a question of whether it's science fiction at all. I think there's a genuine question as to whether it's science fiction or not. And I'm not convinced that the spaceships make it science fiction. Um, I would have said that I, in fact, think Europa Report is the more interesting movie. Yeah. Um, and on that, I mean, there I have actually seen most of the things on the shortlist. Um, I, I think Europa Report is actually a really clever, it's a clever little film, you know, that mm -hmm. does what it does really well. Could have done without the last scene, personally, I have to say. But, you know, yeah. I, th I thought it was very good. And I've not seen the Spike Jones movie. I've not seen her. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Best Short Story was won by Rachel Swirsky who's been on the podcast in recent months for her short story, If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, from Apex, which was a, a very, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting fantasy story uh, and a nice, it's a very sort of brief piece, but but entertaining uh, and probably amongst my top two or three in, in the category personally. I mean, I've got a strong uh, soft spot for Selkie Stories are for Losers by Sophia Samatar, mm. which is a really nice story and it's in my best of the year. And I also like Matt Kressel's um, The Sounds of Old Earth, which is good. Um, one of the results that pleased me the most was Aliette de Bodard winning Best Novelette for The Waiting Stars. She really ha has a fascinating view of classic science fiction and space opera, you know, sort of filtered through her sort of French-Vietnamese background. So it's really interesting. And there are any number of other interesting stories on the ballot. I was surprised and pleased to see Viola Kaftan win for The Weight of Sunrise for Best Novella. I could go into the various merits of some of the others. I mean, uh, Andy Duncan and Ellen Clay just have been on the podcast. We're up for Wakala Springs. I really loved it. And I think Six Guns Snow White from Kat Valenti, I mean, she's become a very, very good short story writer mm. over the last handful of years. And I think you'll see it take home a couple of awards before this year is done. Personally, mm. I would not be surprised to see it take the Hugo home. That would be my tip. Now, best novel we can talk about because we have best all. I mean, I've not read all of them, but I've read a good chunk of them, and you've read three, at least three, right? Uh, look, I've read Ancillary Justice. I've read The Fowler. Yep. Um, I've read The Gaiman. Uh, I have thought very seriously about reading the Sophia Samatar, mm -hmm. um, which I have. Uh, and I have borrowed the Golden and the Genie from the library. <laughs> and both Hild and the Red are, uh, are books that are kind of in my pile waiting to be read. Yep. Um, I've not read Fire with Fire, and I don't really know anything about it. I looked it up when the shortlist came out um, and thought it sounded interesting, but I've not yep. read it. I don't, and as I say, I don't even really know anything about it or him. 
I don't know much about him either, and I confess it's it's one of the books that I've not read, or 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 in fact looked at closely. It's interesting to me because it comes from Bain. Bain's such a curious publisher in and of itself, you know, really tending to publish very traditional um, classic science fiction in a very distinctly branded way. I mean, one of the things that's sort of less known about it is that it's a third owned owned by Tom Doherty, who's of course started up Tor. So it's related to, to, to what his kind of worldview as well. Uh, it's part of a, what, what they call a their new science fiction thriller series. So I assume that mm-hmm. it might. But I, one of the reasons actually, as, as a sort of tangential thing, is I was, I'm pleased to see a Bane book make the Nebula ballot because it kind of offsets some of the peripheral issues about Bane books and stories making the Hugo ballot goes to show that there is non-leveraged kind of merit being acknowledged, which is nice. But it's a curious balance because you've got what, military science fiction in the Linda, Linda, Linda Nagata and I think the Charles Gannon. You've got a, basically a straight historical novel. You've got a, a historical fantasy in the, I think, the Helen Wrecker. You've got a, a, fantasy, a secondary world fantasy in the Samatar, a literary fantasy in the Gaiman, and a literary science fiction in the, what, the Karen Fowler, and a gender-aware far-future space opera in the Anne Leckie, I guess. Uh, look, and I would question whether the Fowler is science fiction at all. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not convinced of that. I mean, I think it can be usefully read within within that, but I mean, it has no science fictional elements really. You know, it's it, it, you know, but I mean, in a weird kind of way, I actually think that's a good thing. I mean, what that shows is a kind of breadth of mm. work and a kind of interesting blurring of of boundaries you know and i'd say the same about hild i mean hild is clearly i've heard i, I heard your podcast with nicola griffith which mm. i thought was really interesting you know and it's quite clear in her head that she's written a historical novel you know yeah and yet it's clearly being read as a fancy novel by a lot of people and yet what, yet what was curious talking to her is in many ways if you were to push her she would say she sees it more as a science fiction novel than a fantasy novel if only because it, you know it's what to, to paraphrase i guess it's a, a historical novel told using the techniques she's derived from writing science fiction, mm, mm. which is kind of I, interesting. Yeah, I must say, I listened to her saying that, and I have to say, as someone who's written historical novels, I, I'm not convinced that those techniques are actually <laughs> different, to be honest. You know, I mean, I... You think it's basic story building? You know, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff... One of the things that I think is interesting about Jeff Vandermeer's Wonder Book, which I think is actually quite an interesting book, mm. uh, more than a quite interesting book, it's, a, it's an interesting book, is that he is reasonably clear that there is no great distinction between these things. You know, you are you are building a world and sometimes bits of it are real and sometimes bits of it aren't. You know, yeah. sometimes bits of it are researched, sometimes bits of it are made up. You know, it kind of depends on the novel how much of that there is. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it is. But I do think it's a really interesting, I think it is an interesting shortlist and the books I've read off it are all really good books, you know, which is yeah. certainly not something I'd say about something like the Hugo Ballot, you know. Well, no. Well, actually, I, I would defend part of the Hugo Ballot, but we might come to the Hugo Ballot in a couple of seconds because there's a few little things to talk about about it. But one thing I'd point is way back in the early days for, for me of getting involved with the field, I had sort of like a, a cheap train spotter's approach to whether I thought a ballot was good, and that was of the books that I've read that are on it, how would I feel about them winning? And honestly... It's just completely ignoring the books I've not not read. There's probably five books on that ballot I would have been completely sanguine about winning, because I thought they were of sufficient quality that they were worthy winners. Uh, I think the, the, the Lecky, actually, to some to, in some ways the Lecky is probably the least of them for me in that way. 
I think it's a worthy winner, but I think it's a, a more flawed book than people admit when they talk about it. They get very enthusiastic. But it's a fairly uh, conventional book in many ways and a bit of a slow starting book. The Fowler Spectacular, but I agree with you, I doubt that it's actually science fiction. The Gaiman, and sometimes Gaiman appears to get onto a ballot just by being Gaiman, and I think he's afraid of that himself or aware of it himself. But I think it's the most extraordinary thing he's done. Um, the Griffith is a terrific book. The Samatar is a fine book. You know, So when I look around, I think there, there were any number of worthy winners. And in the end, you know, sort of, it's an interesting batch of titles to, to sort of consigned to history as as an awards ballot and sets of result tends to do yeah i mean i certainly couldn't think that i uh, the wecker the the golem and the genie is a book that many people seem to just love to death mm. i've i've come close to reading it twice and that sounds terrible but i've just i've been completely unable to make myself read it you know some of these books i keep listening to people te- going on about how fabulous it is yeah and i just uh, i somehow can't quite make myself read it. <laughs> I'm sure you know the feeling I'm talking about. Oh, I do. Um, I mean, I, look, yeah, I feel the same about it, though. I think it's, a, it's, it's an interesting group of books which, in a sense, show the interesting diversity of the field at the moment, mm-hmm. but which are also, as you say, I mean, I would have looked at, I, I would have been completely comfortable with any of the three that I'd read winning. Um I would guess, having read Nicola Griffith's other novels and having heard her talk about Hill, that Hill is probably very good. Yep. You know, and um, I, it, the bits I've read of A Stranger in a Laundry are very impressive as well. You know, so you know, it, it, it's a very strong, strong book. I think the Lecky is an interesting novel. I mean, I think it's, I think it's an interesting novel because it arrived with so much hype behind it that even before it even hit the stands, you had a kind of social media backlash going on about it. And, I mean, I think it's, I actually think it's a really good book. You know, it's a yeah. really classy, you know, kind of really well-done space opera with that does some really interesting things. You know, I don't think it's the greatest book on the face of the planet. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You know, but I think it's one of those funny books that people seem to have adopted really extreme positions around. Sure. And I don't think it really warrants either of the really extreme positions. No, I think it's perfectly worthy. I think it's a worthy winner, yeah, yeah. you know, by which I mean I think it's a good book. I think it's a really good book in some ways, you know, and it's a terrific debut, you know. But yeah. I, I find it strange in a sense both the scale of the hype and the kind of anger it's clearly kind of garnered in some quarters you know sure. neither of which seem to me certainly not the anger i mean i don't i don't uh, i i don't understand i must say one thing i do things interesting about it is i know three people who are not science fiction readers who've read it who've yeah. all loved it there you go which i think is actually fascinating you know I mean, it's one of those books that clearly speaks outside of science fictional readers you know and that's interesting to me that's always interesting to me it's also for me the kind of book that looks like, and this sounds like a strange thing to say, but I've said this sort of thing before here, uh, the, sh- the right shape of book for, to win for the field at the moment. You know, it's like when, it re- the book it reminds me the most of, without being anything like it at all, is Paolo Bacigalupi's debut, debut. You know, at that time the field was ready for a standalone science fiction novel about some kind of sub- substantial issue, you know, that, that, that it talked about in an hopefully intelligent and literary way. Uh, Ancillary Justice, for all that it's the first book in a series, 
nonetheless comes with that same kind of feeling, I think. Here's this book. It's talking about gender. It's talking about individuality and uh, in a really kind of interesting, sort of reasonably clever kind of a way. Uh, it's it's a new novel. It's a first novel. All this sort of stuff. And I think people fell for, and, and, and when I say fell, I mean as in fell in love with rather than was tricked by, fell for um, the shape of the book as much as anything else. There was a bunch of people who wanted this to be a special book, and I think it's a good book. I don't think it's a neuromancer kind of a debut, but I think it's a really interesting book. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting book, and I really enjoyed it. You know, yeah. and I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to sound like I'm dismissing it. I liked it a lot. I mean, I think the gender stuff is really interesting. I think it's wonderfully aware of the history of the field, which is really interesting. I loved, I mean, I really loved the actual society that it gives you. I mean, I, all the stuff about the the kind of wonderful stuff about the gloves and not touching people, the sense, the really strong sense that you had of a complex alien culture, you know. Mm. I, mean, I think all of that's, and in a sense, that that gets lost. I think because people talk endlessly about the gender stuff, yeah, yeah, the individuality stuff. But I actually think all of that is done incredibly well, and I really liked. You know, well, I really, really enjoyed it. You know, I think it's a, I think it's a really good book. Cool. You know, but I don't think it's a, you know, it's not a kind of world-changing book. You yeah. know, and it's that kind of. I, I do feel it's been a bit over. I mean, it is that book about books that arrive with massive hype behind them. Yeah. You can sometimes read them and kind of go, oh, really? Oh, I like that. You know, when in fact they're really good, you know, and I didn't have that reaction with this. I read it and liked it very much. But I can see, I do think it's odd that it's had such such heat in both directions. Yeah. Do you think it's going to win the Hugo? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I Look, I couldn't, I couldn't predict the Hugo. You'd be much better at that. <laughs> Than me, I would have to say that the uh, Hugo Award shortlist just convinces me I will never pay any attention to Hugo ever again. <laughs> I mean, not that I do. I mean, I kind of I'm such a train spotter that I can't bear not to. But I mean, I just, I mean, serious. <laughs> I think, I think for the Hugos, it may prove to be the most important Hugo Awards in quarter of a century, and I'll tell you why. First of all, there's the whole additional social issues around the ballot and what mm. people have complained about. Then there's the fact that almost certainly, you know, if Anne Leckie does not win, I think it's going to come down to one of two potential winners. It's either going to be Anne Leckie or the Wheel of Time. Mm. And I think probably the Wheel of Time will win. You know, from what I understand, since Tor announced that uh, the Wheel of Time will be in the Hugo voter packet, uh, they've sold more than a thousand additional memberships. The whole thing. Yeah. All 13 books will be available as ebooks in the free giveaway Hugo Voter Pack. My God. Yes. Which is, I, I couldn't even guess how many millions of words of prose, but many millions. And I, I assume at retail value, a couple hundred dollars worth of ebooks. Which is great and is a wonderful thing for the thing. But I think it. I'm trying to think of the, the right metaphor. You know where sometimes you're given more than you can swallow? Yeah. Uh, more than you can digest? I think that that may, may be a gift that's more than the Hugo Voter Pack can, can, uh, can absorb. Uh, I say that because the Hugo Voter Pack is an informal part of the Hugo Awards. Uh, was originally was put together by John Scalzi and now is run by the WorldCon itself. And 
th- three of the novels that are up for the Hugo will not be in it. Ancillary Justice won't be in it. Uh, Neptune's Brood by Charles Stross won't be in it. And nor will um, the third Orbit title, uh, Mira Grant's novel. Mm. Largely, I think, because, that, because uh, and I'm guessing here, that uh, Orbit looked and said, well, we've got the biggest Worldcon in history. There's going to be eight plus thousand people. We don't need to be giving away thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies of this. Mm. But the other unexpected ramification, well beyond the fact that um, Robert Jordan will win a uh, posthumous Hugo, which is fine if that's the way that the voters feel about it, is that there's a little-known rule called the 20% rule that applies with the Hugos. I don't know if you've heard about this. And what it says no. is, for a category to be considered valid and to proceed, it must attract 20% of the voters who vote on the, on the, you know, at all. In other words, if a 1,000 people vote for best novel, any category that gets less than 200 votes will not be presented. So if you may end up with kind of 5,000 people voting for novel and only 200 voting for all of the short story. There are probably, well, at the moment, the guess is there's at least three categories that will now not be presented. Simply because of this one anomaly. You know, so I think best novelette they think is quite likely not to get presented. Best editor long form and uh, best fan writer I think might not get presented. Hmm. And I hope that that's not what proves to be the case. I know Brandon Sanderson, as a co-nominee for Best Novel for the Wheel of Time, has been exhorting Wheel of Time readers to familiarize themselves with everything else on the ballot and the rest of the field and to and to vote and be involved with it themselves. And I hope that proves to be the case. But you know, you, I've got to wonder how the Hugo packet can continue into the future if it's going to be a distorting factor for the awards. Mm which was never the intention. I think I know the intention of the awards was always, always, always to just let people become better informed and make better choices about what should be nominated. Mm. So it's an interesting time, something that I'll see when I'm in London. Yeah, look, I, I would be surprised. I, look, I, 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 I don't pretend to know the mind of the Hugo voters. No, no. Um, if the Wheel of Time didn't win, I would have thought, it would come, but I mean, it's a voting award, isn't it? No, it's, yeah, popular this is the catch. So Mira Grant's got a big following, you know, you just, that, that makes it very hard to call. But if you were talking about kind of merit, you know, surely Ancillary Justice is the best of the four remaining books, you know. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the Stross, you know, which yeah. I know you like. Well, I enjoyed it. I guess what I'll, I'll say this very sort of emphatically. It is my hands-down belief that had The Wheel of Time not been nominated and almost any other book had appeared there. I think uh, Anne Leckie would have walked away with the Hugo. Yeah. That's my feeling. I can't guess how it will go because of the Wheel of Time, but I, th- I think she would have. Um, mm. So, you know, it's an interesting kind of a thing. I would segue to a, an almost Hugo-related thing because I have something to thank you slash blame you for that I'm going to talk about here now. And that is, I've been reading a lot of uh, comic books, James. Oh. <laughs> and I wasn't reading comic books much, say, three years ago, until Paul Cornell of this parish started talking about the best graphic story category, and I thought I should involve myself, you know, become more informed if I was going to nominate and vote. And then Grant Watson, who sometimes listens to this podcast and has a very good podcast of his own, and who, blog, who blogs at angriest.blogspot.com.au, actually blogged about things that he felt should have made the Hugo ballot instead of Girl Genius, 
The Girl Who Loved the Doctor, and Meat House Man, and Saga Volume 2, and Time. And without getting to the merits of those, thanks partly through your aegis, I've been reading some very interesting science fictional comics, James. Oh, good. I mean, I think that... I think comics are in a very good place at the moment and a really interesting. I mean, I think interestingly, superhero comics are in a very good place at the mm. moment and are really interesting. You know, and I, I'd say somewhat sadly, given I'm a man in my late 40s, that it's actually <laughs> comics that I enjoy. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I, you know, something happened at Marvel about four years ago and they've just been doing one great title after another, hugely fun. You know, they, they rediscovered something that they'd lost, yeah. you know, but there's a kind of a breadth of ideas and a sense of kind of both delight in the history of, oh, I, I guess, of the universe and a kind of delight in just what they're doing, which is so much fun. And you know, everyone talks about Hawkeye, which is wonderful, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's any number of the others are terrific. I mean, Mark Wade's Daredevil is fantastic, you know, I and has been yeah. fantastic for three or four years, yeah. you know. Um, I, I like Hickman's run on Avengers, you know. I mean, all of that yeah. stuff's terrific. But lots of these, lots of these titles they've been doing have been, have been hugely entertaining. I thought the all-new X-Men run what yeah. was great for a while, you know, and then I just it's, then it's another X-Men comic and I lose focus <laughs> on it. Um, I'm too old for the X-Men. But, um, uh, God, I loved them so much in the 1980s when I was a kid. And <laughs> now I just look at them and I just go, I can't. Oh. Um, yeah, um, but the science fiction ones are good. You were talking about Lazarus the other day, which I still haven't read. I actually bought well, it the other day. There's a handful. I mean, since, since, you know, over the last, say, six months when I've been reading more comics than anything else in some ways, I mean, I've dipped into superhero comics, which have never been my first love. I completely agree with you about Mark Wade's Daredevil and about Hawkeye. I've been enjoying the new Captain Marvel that's being done. Mm. I've been interested, though I have some caveats, I think, so far about um, Ms. Marvel, uh, the, the one that's done by um, Willow, G. Willow Wilson. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what, what you think about it, but I think it still hasn't had a chance to find enough depth to really make me think it's terrific. I, I look. I I like it. I like it a lot. I like it a lot partly because of the way it's riffing on particularly early Spider-Man. So you've mm -hmm. got that sense of this character embedded in a kind of very ordinary world. I think some of the kind of Muslim stuff is interesting, but sometimes a little over emphatic. And I don't mean by that that it's being foreground too much. It. I think it's sometimes, you know, in a sense it becomes the dominant thing about the yeah. character. Yeah. And, you know, if this was a non-Muslim character, it would not be the dominant thing about the character. And I, I'm sure that will settle in, but there is something about, you know, kind of yeah. foregrounding an aspect of the identity of the character, which seems to me, you know, to, 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 is that kind of thing about you have a gay character and all yeah. you talk about is their gayness. It's kind of like, well, couldn't we talk about their something relationship? Else. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> they have that as well, you know. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I th I having said that, I think that's all handled and it's very funny and, you know, the relationship with the parents are great. I suspect, speaking as a long-time comic reader, that one of the issues it's going to have is both that it has a very strange origin story and odd powers, mm. which are difficult to understand, yep. um, and that it 
it in a sense has not established a set of a set of kind of adversaries within the universe yet. And it's not three or four issues in. Having said that, I'm really enjoying it and I really like it and I think it's smart and it's funny and, you know, there's a lot to like about it. Yeah. But I, I guess what I've said is that it, it almost feels like it's, it's, it's spent so much time foregrounding itself, it hasn't had enough time to actually do enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's kind of my my concern about it. There's a bit much of that, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, I think it's yeah. I think it's good. You know, I think it's good, and I do think it's I do think there's something really refreshing about its depiction of an ordinary family. You yeah. know, which is one of the things that, in a sense, comics did, and yeah. then stopped doing. And have gotten back to, and it, look, it, it is interestingly the kind of thing that made Russell T Davies' Doctor Who so interesting. You know, that sense that it could do domestic yeah. stuff really, really well, yeah. ordinary lives, and somehow situate them in this fantastical universe. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah. I like it. Good. Well, I mean, a couple of things I've enjoyed. I, I tried Alex and Ada, the, uh, Jonathan Luna and Sarah Vaughan's comic about the young man who falls in love with a, with a, a robot which I thought was interesting. Didn't blow me away, but I liked it. I've just fallen down the East of West rabbit hole. Uh, I haven't read East of West yet. Oh, I'm I've now, got it. Yeah, I'm like, it. I'm like eight issues in all of a sudden. Uh, and, I mean, it's dark, and it's it's, it's what a, an apocalyptic weird western, I guess, is the way I might describe it, with a very sort of uh, Grand Gougenol approach to horror balanced against... Um, a sort of Clint Eastwood sensibility for death himself. Mm. I've, look, I've read an issue which I liked. But yeah. I've not read. I, I bought the first ten or whatever. I just haven't read the rest of them yet. Yeah. Well, I, I, all I can say is I was knocked out by it. Really, really liked it. Mm. Um, Grant Watson recommended the, the Fuse to me, which I've sort of tried and is a uh, sort of set in space detective series, which is interesting. Um, not. 100 miles off aspects of the popular um, James S.A. Corey books. Mm. Lazarus, as I've raved at you about, the Greg, Greg Ruckus Lazarus, has just absolutely knocked me out. I just belted through that in no time and can't wait for the last two books of the of the, of the series to see what happens with it, with this, this story of sort of this young woman who's been bred to be the defender of this uh, all-powerful family in a dystopic sort of near future. And it is. It's a very. It's a just a propulsive story. I can imagine making a spectacular film, though it's a very very good comic book. Um, what else did I tried? Yeah, I think after you with you, I was trying out Planetoid, which wasn't bad, and Starlight. Starlight I've enjoyed. Just read the latest I've, one. Of those. I've really enjoyed Starlight. The first couple of issues of that. Yep. I, I I was enjoying the wake enormously. Although now. Oh, yes. Transported into the future, I'm rather less excited by it. I have to confess. I, I um, agree with that. I, I thought the first five, the, the first five issue arc. Oh, fantastic! How that thing is not on the Hugo ballot actually, just shows, shows people weren't looking. You know, it's mm. the only uh, because you're right. Now that we've got into just for I guess to give people background, it's about what set a couple hundred years in the future. These weird mer creatures come up from the bottom of the ocean and start attacking life on land, roughly. No? Yeah, and, okay. and the, the, then it goes from kind of now into kind of mm. 200 years of the future, and it's a kind of steampunky kind of, you know, ocean punk kind of world, yeah. you know, 
climate punk. What do we call it? Um, but those for, that, 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 that near future stuff was just riveting and terrific. Yeah, it's fantastic. But then I was left, I'm left a bit cold by the stuff with the. I just have been thinking, as soon as there's pirates, I start to wish box. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like wish fulfillment to me. Um, uh, yeah, but no, no, there is there is some fantastic fantastic stuff out oh, yeah. there. And I'm look, I'm not a comic. I am a sad superhero comic nerd, yeah. like acclaimed, <laughs> acclaimed to any particular. Uh, I don't claim to have any particularly good taste or you know yeah. things, but I. I've been reading Marvel comics for 40 years. <laughs> and I'm not going to stop, young man. I'm not going to stop. Well, I did actually stop for a number of years and yeah. I fell back into it. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, thankfully I stopped for long enough to miss the dark days of the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. Sound like they weren't too good. Um, yeah. Well, the one thing I'm sort of touching on right now, and I really don't know how I feel about it right now, is Love and Rockets. Uh, I've always been to, I have to confess, I've not read Love and Rockets, and I've always meant to. That was it, too, and I just bought, uh, there's a Love and the Rockets library available, and they've gathered all the books into story arcs the way you're supposed to read them or whatever else. And, you know, like, apart from, the, I, I think it touches on one of my profound problems with comics. I've got a couple of problems with comics, James. I don't like the way they get dropped one episode, one issue at a time every month, and so you read mm -hmm. a little sliver of story. That just irritates the shit out of me. Uh, the one thing that has is a factor for me is if I don't relate to the artwork, I'm not going to be engaged by the story. And I guess to be fair, if you were to compare it to prose, I guess if you didn't like the description that someone had, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't relate to it either. But I'm not sure I like the Hernandez artwork, and that might mm. be a factor for me. So that's interesting. I mean, I'm sorry, I just have such disgracefully low rent taste. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you say that, come on, you, you would agree that The Wake should have been on the Hugo ballot, probably. Oh, or, yeah. Or would do you think Mark Wade should have been up? Um, I think The Wake should have been. I mean, yeah. Wake should, you know, I think, think it's terrific. Um, I can see why Saga uh, is. Sorry? I can see why Saga is. Yeah, I like Saga. Um, uh... Look, I, I think the Wade is really fun, but it's just it's it, it's got also that thing that the Hawkeye's got, and that a number of those Marvel comics have got at the moment, which is a sense of. I mean, I think that they did something really interesting in House of Marvel over the two thousands, where in that series of big stories, kind of Civil War, um, uh, stuff that followed all of that, those, those big crossover events they did over the last kind of five to eight years, they have actually done something really interesting about kind of rebooting their universe so it sort of makes sense in a contemporary context again, yeah. which it really wasn't. And it feels kind of, this can sound weird, it feels plausible, yeah. you know, and that's not quite the word I mean, but it doesn't feel wildly implausible. You know, you feel like you're reading it and you're reading a world that is recognisable. And having done that, they've now done something where what they've allowed themselves to do is to stop doing stories about dark, tortured superheroes and do stuff where they embrace, you know, I sense the kind of joy that that kind of, the thing that took you to comics in the first place, these people can fly. Yeah. You know, these people, you know, and uh, it, it is interesting when it's those characters like Daredevil who are so endlessly mutable. And what's fascinating about Daredevil is he's a kind of a B-list character who somehow has been the medium through which a number of the most impressive kind of works of comics that have ever been made have been made. Yeah. But 
you know, they're kind of rediscovering the pleasure in that, you know, which is really fun. I mean, you know, one of the great things about all new X-Men when it started was it was an X-Men comic that was fun. Yeah. You know, it was actually fun, you know, and yeah, I, I would say something similar about, uh, about Hawkeye, you know, and about a number of these new titles that are doing this Marvel as well. It's a comic that, that it understands what's fun about this. I mean, uh, Kelly DeConnick's Captain Marvel is explicitly aware of that. You know, yeah. you've got this really interesting character, you know. So it is, yeah, look, I, I find them fascinating at the moment. <laughs> and the art's beautiful. I mean, they've just, they've clearly also done something about encouraging a different relationship between the writers and the artists. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. But the capacity to kind of rethink what the graphic of a comic might look like is really, really interesting, you know, and to, which is not to say that, yeah, perhaps I'm overrating that. But I, do, <laughs> I don't know. I do think that they've done a number of beautiful-looking comics. You know, yeah. Hawkeye is beautiful-looking. Daredevil is beautiful-looking. Chris Samney's work on Daredevil is fantastic. You know, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, look, I think they've been doing really, really interesting things. And, I mean, uh, what's interesting, of course, is that none of it sells. You know, I mean, the movies are making just – extraordinary amounts of yeah. money and comics are a niche industry yeah you know kind of and they were 40 years ago no well it, it's kind of touches on, touches on something else which is i guess relevant though we probably won't get a chance to talk about it much today because we're probably at the end of our time <laughs> <laughs> and that and is haven't talk about karen joy fowler well we have talked about karen joy fowler uh, I, I might have touched on the impact of uh amazon buying comiXology since we we're talking about comics which I think is probably going to prove to be significant, unfortunately. Well, I suspect it will. I mean, look, I, Amazon has been extremely bad for the publishing industry. You know, I yeah. mean, I, I use them, everybody uses them. Um, but they have just been, most of my publishing kind of interactions are with, the, with Australia and the UK. I mean, Amazon has just been catastrophic in the UK, the publishing industry and the book selling industry yeah. there. You know, and yeah. I I imagine that something similar will happen will happen to the comics industry. I mean it will be I will be interested to see what it does to pricing actually. Because I mean I do think that comicsology stuff is too expensive. You know, and I mean I can't believe I'm saying that as a writer, but I mean I find myself, you know, when I fork out five dollars for a comic that's twenty pages long. Yeah. that I don't get a physical object for, I do find myself thinking, that seems a bit steep, really. But, but don't, um, you, don't you find yourself also going, gosh, it's like, look, you, you tipped me off to Daredevil, right? And I read it. And I bought them when they were all a buck an issue. Yeah, that's the way to buy them. You know, and I bought, you know, 30 issues or something. But, you know, but it seemed... Them Thursday and read them on Thursday morning. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but compare that. I mean, I was off in a bookstore yesterday, you know, with Marianne, right? And she bought the new Charlene Harris book for 30 bucks. Hmm. You know, I, I can't pretend that I didn't get as much value out of my my thirty dollars worth of Daredevil as she got out of her thirty dollars worth of Charlene Harris or whatever it might have been. So All right, let me it kind of they're not they're not too expensive. But one of the things that you know, I perhaps am being unfair about them being too expensive and consigning you know my fellow writers and artists <laughs> over there to, <laughs> to the pit. Penury. Yep. But I um, but I mean. What Amazon have done is screw the prices of books down for consumers massively, oh, yeah. which has been really, really yes. damaging, bad for publishers. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is a, there's a book out at the moment about Amazon, which I've not read, but I read a very long review about it, 
and they have one a series of stories about dreadful things Amazon have done. And they had one wonderful one about Toys R Us about 10 years ago, and Toys R Us set up a a website to sell toys just before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And Amazon didn't like this very much. So Amazon went to them and bought every single toy in all of their most popular lines, bought all their stock, put it back on their website and resold it, because they were all new, obviously. Mm. And then got them got Toys R Us reported to whatever the regulatory authority is for overpromising because they couldn't deliver the things that they had on their website. Assholes. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> this, uh, this, this review just had a list of stories like that about their kind of conduct within marketplaces, <laughs> which is just, I mean, predatory is putting it lightly. Yes. You know? Yes. Well, on that cheery note, on that <laughs> cheery note, we might wind up. I've got no doubt we'll talk. I'll talk. We'll talk to you again here. On the podcast again in the future. Thank you for joining me today, for filling in for Gary, who's off, you know, sort of consumed by family obligation for the weekend. It's been a lot of fun. No, it's been great. Thank you very much. And, I, and you know, to you out there, I hope that you enjoy the podcast. Plans are afoot for our recording in Melbourne, or sorry, so in London. Uh, all sorts of secret plans being made, so it should be exciting. But for the moment, thank you, James, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>